We start with the latest celebrities wading into British Columbia's environmental battles. Now, we've seen several examples of this. Leonardo DiCaprio has criticized the Coastal Gas Link pipeline, for example. Jane Fonda has slammed the pipeline. And here we go with the latest celebrity influencer here now, Mark Ruffalo, okay? Though the actor who's better known as the Incredible Hulk, and he is going Avenger mode here on the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline. I have Liberal MLA Ellis Ross standing by. First, let's have a listen to Mark Ruffalo about the pipeline. Have a listen. To RBC CEO Dave McKay, defund the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline and stop violating Indigenous rights. You got it all wrong, man. RBC, you have the power to stop CGL. Okay, Mark Ruffalo there, going Hulk mode on the pipeline, calling out RBC, the Royal Bank of Canada, and calling on them to pull funding for that pipeline project in northern British Columbia. You heard him invoke indigenous rights there, indigenous sovereignty. Okay, let's discuss with my guest, Ellis Ross, BC Liberal MLA for Skeena. He is the former elected chief counselor of the Heisla First Nation. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Ellis, thanks for coming on. No problem, Mike. Good to be here. What do you think of Mark Ruffalo here weighing in on the pipeline? He doesn't have a clue. He doesn't have a first freaking clue of what Indigenous rights actually means, especially in the context of Coastal Gaslink. A lot of what these activists are doing is actually just clouding the story. In fact, LNG in BC was actually built on the foundation of Aboriginal rights and title. It's actually the reverse of what they're saying. Mark Ruffalo and Gene Fonda and all of DiCaprio knows guys. They, they should just stick to acting. Yeah, now you heard him. You heard him talk there about indigenous rights in the clips that we played. But you, you tell me, Ellis, like the First Nations who live near that pipeline project, do, do not most or all of them have a piece of it, or they've endorsed it? They've they've pretty much uh, basically supported it all the way through, right from 2004 to 2017. In fact, if yeah. anything, it was bands like my band that actually brought LNG to BC. It was us. I was telling the BC Liberal government, hey, you got to get on board with this project because it's going to bring so much economic development to First Nations, to BC. It's going to do everything. So it wasn't until Chrissy Clark came along and said, okay, let's do it. So yeah. all these people, all these activists and all these actors, they get it all wrong. They get it backwards. Okay, now you you called out Mark Ruffalo yeah. on, on social media this week over this post. So... So you're telling him that he's got it wrong, and I believe I think you've offered to talk to him about it, right? You would like to you would like to sit down and speak to him about this, right? Well, I offered uh, Leonardo DiCaprio the same thing. I invited them up here to come talk to me, come talk to the other leaders who were there from yeah. day one, and uh, hopefully, and what I said to Mark Ruffalo is saying, "Come on up here, and I'll unlike you." And by the way, do you have a solution for native poverty, native suicide, uh, native unemployment, uh, natives going into prison? Uh, but that, that's that, that's something that the activists uh, choose to ignore. Yeah. Now, of course, you know, among indigenous people themselves, there's division over this project. I mean, there are hereditary yeah. chiefs in in the area who, of course, oppose the project. So it's not, you know, would you be willing to acknowledge like there is significant indigenous opposition to the project, too, as well as support? Oh, without a doubt. But uh, you know what? As far as I remember, right back as far as 2003, elected chief and councils were representing First Nations interests. 
That's what they do. I mean, why why are First Nations held to a different standard in terms of being able to choose their leadership? And it was all those elected chief and councils that I worked with, by the way, that said, yes, we like this. We like the consultation accommodation. We like what government's doing. We liked what this project's doing. And therefore, we're going to support it. We're going to approve it. So why are we being held to a different standard? Like Canadians, mm. you know, drop what you're doing and start obeying the monarchy. Start obeying the queen regardless of your elected officials. Speaking to Ellis Ross, Liberal MLA, former chief of the Heisler First Nation, as you mentioned, Ellis, uh, Mark Ruffalo, uh, just one of many celebrities who have weighed in on on projects here in British Columbia and and in Western Canada, too. So let me play a clip here for you of Jane Fonda, and this was during a trip to Alberta. She did a flyover over the Alberta oil sands, uh, met with Indigenous leaders on the ground in Alberta, and you'll hear her, her challenged here on some of the Indigenous groups and First Nations in Alberta that work on the, uh, in the oil sands or have a piece of, piece of the oil sands. Have a listen to this exchange here, Jane Fonda. It's very interesting to do a flyover, which gives you the macro. It's affecting every aspect of their lives. So Are you aware that Jim Boucher from the Mackay First Nations sorry, just invented $250 million into the oil sands? Are you that's aware great, that there's there's 289 sorry. Aboriginal we businesses? We actually don't have time because that's actually where we're going. To okay, have you talked to the First Nation people yeah. who they support the oil and gas? I sure hope that your report on Fort McMurray is a pleasant one and not just bashing us. Okay, so you heard some residents there saying like, hey, some of the Indigenous First Nations here actually support these projects. I mean, would you say that's kind of similar to the Ruffalo thing here in BC, Alice? Oh, without, without a doubt. In fact, these these American actors are hypocrites, and and they, they're living in echo chambers. They won't go talk to the Indian Resource Council. They won't go talk to the National Coalition of uh, Native Chiefs in Canada. They won't. They won't do that because it doesn't fit their narrative. And in fact, <laughs> there's so many narratives to this. I mean, Americans coming in to bash Canadians especially when we're talking yeah. about the treatment of Aboriginals since 2004, we're doing a much better job than other countries or jurisdictions around the world when trying to address Aboriginal and title. And we did a great job. And this is what I'd like BC to know. This is, not, this is not the time to hang your head in shame. BC, from 2004 to 2017, you did more for First Nations than any other single government in the history of Canada. So come on, let's, let's start talking about the, the reality of what we're doing here in BC and not listen to actors... Well, or activists. If if Mark Ruffalo was to out, respond to your offer, I, I mean, I would bet a million dollars he would not. But if he did say, "Okay, Ellis, I will come to Northern British Columbia and I'll let you show me around and I'll talk to you," or or Leonardo DiCaprio, you've extended the same offer to him to talk about the pipeline. Like, what would you tell them? What what would you show them if they did if they did come and sit down with you and say, "Okay, show me around and give me your side of it"? What would you tell them or show them? First, I'd show them what we were like before 2004, living on government money, living in poverty, unemployment. Then I'd show them my community of today, where we're using our own money to build youth centers, using our own money to build elder centers, helping our own people with our own money, building up our own programs to address our own social issues, renovating our soccer field, our rec center, building a fire hall with our own money, and the list goes on and on and on. But ultimately, I'd show them all the Aboriginals, the a generation of Aboriginals who say yes, 
this job I've got, it's amazing. I'm, I'm getting a mortgage. I'm getting a house. I'm getting a, a van. I'm going on vacation. I'm, I'm building my life, and I don't need the Indian Act. I don't need the politics. I don't need anything else. You know, I'm, I'm on my own. I'm independent. And the council has achieved independence to the point where, theoretically, they could say to Ottawa, look, we don't need your money. We got our own. I mean, this is the, the fullest definition I can think of of independence. And this is what I'd like to show Mark Ruffalo and Leonardo DiCaprio. But I agree with you on that that bet for a million dollars. They won't come up because yeah. it just doesn't fit their argument. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be very surprised. Ellis Ross, thank you for coming on this morning. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much, Mike. Okay, Ellis Ross, BC Liberal MLA for Skeena. He is the former chief counselor of the Heisla First Nation. Uh, talking about uh, Mark Ruffalo, his uh, dispute on social media with the actor who plays the Incredible Hulk. The Mark Ruffalo calling on the banks to pull the plug on the coastal gasoline pipeline. Ellis Ross supports that pipeline. So do some of the first, many of the First Nations along the pipeline route. Now, there is opposition among indigenous people to this project for sure, just like there isn't everywhere else. So there are hereditary chiefs who oppose, notably oppose the, the coastal gasoline pipeline. But of course, we see a, a lot of celebrities weighing in. Have a listen to Miley Cyrus here, a pop star. Uh, she came to British Columbia to call out the, oppose the wolf call going on in BC. Have a listen to this young people that really do want to make a change that aren't set in these ways of well we shoot animals hopefully that's the dying breed here hopefully that's what goes extinct the reason why i am here is i want to see the wolf call ended okay as miley cyrus calling for an end to the wolf call which is being done to protect endangered caribou herds in british columbia all right we continue to talk about celebrities opposing natural resource development in BC, especially LNG, liquefied natural gas, and that pipeline under construction in northern BC, Coastal GasLink. That's like a $6 billion project, part of the even bigger LNG Canada project under construction right now in Kitimat. You played, we played the clip uh, there of actor Mark Ruffalo opposed to the pipeline and Ellis Ross former chief of the Heisla First Nation, pushing back against him. 604-280-9898 is the number to call me. Star 9898 on your cell. Brian calling from Alberta. Hi, Brian. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. What do you think? I'm uh, fully in support of uh, oil and gas development in this country because it brings riches not, not just to the indigenous, but to all communities that they support. You don't see Jane Fonda's name on an arena or a, a branch of her, or a, um, a piece of a hospital. But right in downtown in Vancouver, there's a tech arm of a hospital. You don't see David Suzuki or Tides or any of them step up and support communities. They take away from them. They damage them. And... Our Liberal government in Ottawa has donated almost $420 million to activist groups across this country and in North America that turn around and attack industry. So what's that say about our federal government? Okay, Brian, thank you for calling in. Star 9898 on your cell is the number to call. Pat in Vancouver. Hey, Pat, what do you think? Um, Two quick stories. I worked for over 30 years in the film industry. When Leonardo DiCaprio was working on The Revenant, they were just outside of Calgary when a Chinook came through. And Leo said, 
what is this? Like, it was suddenly it's warm, like just within a few hours. And the crew all looked at him and said, oh, it's global warming. And he got into a rant about global warming, not having any idea what a Chinook is. I worked on a movie with Ed Blakely Jr. We were shooting up at Cypher's Bowl. Entertainment Tonight came up to interview him, and he took him into the forest and said, look at this beautiful old growth forest. Isn't it great that this old growth forest is here? I said, Ed, I took him further in. I said, look, see that great big stump there? These trees were cut down 100 years ago to build houses in Vancouver. <laughs> this is not old growth forest. Oh, he second said, growth. No idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what, what did he say when you explained to him it's not, that was not old growth? Well, he kind of, you know, he made an excuse, right? Oh, well, you know, it's still old forest, and it's still nice, and it's just, yeah. well... That's all they do. They make excuses. Yeah, yeah. No, it's still nice. Th- thank you for that. Yeah, no. When you replant a forest, new trees grow, and yeah, it's nice. Yeah, you know, people of course will say that when you replant, when you clear cut and replant, you're creating some sort of like a, a monoculture uh, environment that is not as good as the uh, as effective as the original trees and protecting the planet. Like I get the other side of it too. Dev in Vancouver. Hey, Dev. Um, hello, I think the 10 facelifts that uh, Hanoi Jane has had has cut off oxygen to her brain. Um, I don't know how okay, she's Okay, let's, let's, be, let's be nice. Let, let's try and be reasonably, just make your point without, okay. without well, insulting point. people. Uh, Alice yeah. Ross talked about hereditary monarchs, and, and he just said it right now. These are elected First Nations councils by, elected by their members who are making decisions. And I don't understand, maybe you can explain to me why they have to be treated like kids and they have to listen to hereditary leaders. So you, Mike Smith, are you going to listen to Queen Elizabeth? Are you going to, are you, so your elected representatives are null and void tomorrow, and Queen Elizabeth is going to rule over you. She's a hereditary monarch. Did you get his point? I, I understand. Yeah, of, course, of course, yes, of course I got his point. Thank you for the call. Okay, let's talk cycling in the city now. Now, a lot of people have heard about the bike lanes in Vancouver. How about bicycle highways? Could Vancouver become a hub for cycle highways? What are cycle highways? Well, they're similar to motorized vehicle highways. They're paved. They're well-lit. Uh, they're easy to follow. Cyclists love them. They are popular in other cities around the world, including in England. Have a listen to this here about the success of bicycle highways in other countries. Have a listen here. So these uh, major cycling facilities are now in. They're working. They've made a really huge change in London. We have 40 miles of cycle super highway rolled out at the moment. The biggest benefit for me of the cycle super highways is that it gives you a point-to-point route network. So I know if I want to get from the center of the city out to the northwest, I can get on the super highway and it's going to take me exactly radially where I want to go. Okay, that's a little bit of the cycling highways in London. Let's discuss now with my guest, Aaron O'Mellon. Aaron is the executive director of Hub Cycling. It's a nonprofit society that works to improve conditions for cycling in Metro Vancouver. Hi, Aaron. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Can you explain what these uh, bike highways are? I, I tried a little. I, I explained it a little bit, but they're different from a bike lane, right? That's right. I think you did a great job explaining. Cycle highways are the highest okay. quality bike routes. They cover long distances of over five kilometers. They connect major destinations, paved, lit, direct, 
ample width, um, clear signage and branding so folks know exactly where they're going. They don't have to be constantly looking at maps. And they're safe and comfortable for people of all ages and abilities to use at all times of the day and year. And this is really uh, important. Cycling is the fastest growing mode of transportation in the region, and 41% of people want to cycle more. Yeah. Do we have any of these cycling highways in Metro Vancouver right now? Not to the quality that we're talking about here. So some examples that are kind of on their way there would be BC Parkway or Central Valley Greenway, but they need some improvements to intersections uh, and signage and intuitiveness to really um, graduate up to that cycle highway level. Right. Okay. So tell me about the campaign to, to make this a reality. What would you like to see happen in Metro Vancouver? Mm-hmm. We've identified some top routes that we think could be kind of quick wins to showcase some of the value of cycle highways, uh, connecting municipalities, more regional destinations, and it really does address many of the pressing challenges we're facing right now around congestion, record high gas prices, the climate crisis, equity and access and affordability, and mental and physical health. So we think we can get some broad support from folks all the way from government and health um, to, to every driver that's out there that feels stuck like they don't have other choices. Yeah. So what would be some at the top of the list? Like you mentioned, there are, there are some routes that you've identified that you could move mm-hmm. quickly on. What are, some of the, what are some of the top priorities for you? Yeah, a couple of them include, as mentioned, the BC Parkway. So that goes all the way from Surrey to Vancouver. And there is some existing network there. Um, Probably 80% is comfortable for most people. So improving some of the intersections and wayfinding there that would allow people to connect. Another example is from the Tri-Cities to the North Shore, uh, providing a corridor there that would connect those different destinations. And then our next phase of study is going to look at the potential. So those areas that may not be close at all to having this but would really benefit from it okay and we heard in the clip we played there that this is being done in other cities like where are some of these cycling highways in place in other cities around the world Mm-hmm. You mentioned London, there's also Netherlands yeah. and Denmark, and there's huge numbers of people transitioning. You know, on the, the CS3 cycle highway in London, cycling has increased 83%. In the Netherlands, a third of the riders were brand new to cycling for transportation. So we're seeing a lot of shifts. People want to do this. And with the proliferation of e-bikes, it's making it even yeah. easier to go those long distances quickly, and you never have to worry if you're going to run out of Um, And so as we're seeing those bikes, e-bikes become more affordable uh, and popular, it's really important for us to add that infrastructure to allow people to capitalize on these options to feel healthier and get out of congestion. Speaking to Aaron O'Mellon, Executive Director, Hub Cycling, the campaign for bike highways in Metro Vancouver. So Aaron, like you've already identified some of the places you think where this type of infrastructure could be introduced. Is there, are there a lot of opportunities to do this? I mean, land is at a premium in Metro Vancouver to say the least, right? So, I mean, is it difficult to find space to put these things in? I mean, it depends where you're looking, but we have identified a lot of areas that have space. If you look at a lot of motor vehicle highways, you know, directly adjacent to them, there's there's large 
parts of land. Um, you know, here I'm in Pitt Meadows right now. That's where I live. And there's actually a small example of a cycle highway that's directly parallel to Lougheed. You know, it's protected. There's a grassy verge between them and so you feel quite safe. Um, but in a lot of our suburbs, there is that space there. And I think the suburbs have a lot to benefit from this um, to provide people those direct, more long distance cycle routes. So you're probably thinking of those dense urban areas um, yeah. where it's like building sidewalks, street and where do you put the bikes um you know there are existing bike lanes that would likely be kind of converted and improved in those situations um you know vancouver already has a fairly robust network but then as you move further out into the suburbs um, there's less cycling network but more space to create that okay how much would it cost and where would you get the money to pay for it Mm-hmm. We don't have specific costs because we haven't gotten to that level of detail and it really depends on what already exists, but it would be paid for the exact same way that all our other transportation network is paid for. A variety of levels of government would contribute. Yeah. Well, could you ballpark it for me? Like, you know, we're talking millions of dollars for this, or are we? I mean, is it, it's probably cheaper to build one of these than to build a car highway, though. Very, yeah, it's very cost effective compared to motor vehicle. For example, City of Portland calculated their city's entire bicycle network, which is over uh, 480 kilometers of bikeways, would cost about $60 million, um, which is the same as one mile of four-lane urban freeway. Okay, what kind of support are you getting? I know you're getting some political, you know, Mm-hmm. high fives from P- Jonathan Cote, notably the mayor of New Westminster here. I see he's he likes this idea. Are you getting any other kind of indications of support or any government saying like, yeah, we're going to get in on board with this? Yeah, there's a lot of interest. TransLink already has a major bikeway network concept, and some of that's been built out. Their 10-year vision that they just uh, prioritized publicly said they want to increase that by a couple hundred kilometers, and that's very aligned with cycle highways. You know, They're called something different, uh, but we are working together with them to figure out, like, this is pretty much the same thing we're talking about, and, and it's connecting those regional hubs. Uh, I know the province is interested. They, you know, all the governments have goals around climate, action around affordability around access and cycling is such a cost-effective way to accomplish so many of those goals so they're keenly interested okay aaron what would you say to people who who may be listening to this right now and i know many are are thinking like oh no here we go again we got more bike lanes we want more money for for cycling and wait a sec how about maybe the cyclist should should help pay for this infrastructure. Like right now, if you're driving a motorized vehicle, you're getting, you're getting hammered every time you pay your, uh, fill up a gas tank with taxes and taxes on top of taxes. Do you like, how could, you know, for the people who would use this infrastructure cyclists, do you think there's any way that they could help pay for it? I don't know, through a licensing system or something. So we do, all of us already pay for transportation infrastructure because the majority of it actually comes from property tax. So whether you're a tenant or a homeowner, uh, you are paying for the majority of transportation through those means. And then as mentioned, cycling infrastructure is much more cost effective to build and maintain. And so the needs there are much smaller. So it's actually covered by property taxes already. Although... You know, if you start doing some of the math on this, like how much did you say it cost in Portland? Did you say sixty million? Right for the whole city's network. For the whole city, yeah. Okay, well, that's not peanuts, though. 
I mean, 60 million, compare 60 it to million. how much a motor vehicle network would cost, that would be billions upon billions. For, for the same, like, length of highway, you mean? Exactly. For yeah. cars and trucks. Yeah. yeah. But, it, but would it have the same level of utilization? Like, you know, you know, right now, you know, we all know how busy the highways are when you get into traffic jams if you're behind the wheel of a vehicle. But if you built all these bike highways... Mm-hmm. Is there any guarantee it would actually be used? I mean, do you have any evidence that people would say, hey, okay, they built this highway. I'm, I'm getting a bike. Yeah, well, people are interested. People keenly want to bike more. We have the stats that show that. Uh, already in Metro Vancouver, 25% of people are regular cyclists. Um, and when you look at the networks that have good cycling facilities, you know, Strathcona neighborhood in Vancouver has 43% of people cycling regularly. Broadway is 32%. KISS is 38%. So if you build it and you make people feel safe and comfortable, then that's when they make the transition. So in Denmark, right. the cycle highway network is estimated to create 720,000 fewer car journeys, right? That's 55,000 fewer hours spent in traffic. And that benefits people that still need to drive, right? Not every trip is going to be made by bike. We understand that. But let's free up the space for people that need it and give people real options. Um, But, you know, London cycling has increased by 83%. Like, these are big numbers. um, And there's a lot of potential. But you need to provide the network. Driving is very popular right now mostly yeah. uh, because it is very easy, right? The network has been built. It's all been designed for that. And if we design for other modes, people will take them. Aaron, thank you for coming on to talk about it today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Okay, we've talked a lot on the show in the past about some of the blockades that have been set up, blocking roads, highways, bridges in Metro Vancouver by environmental protesters Notably, the group Save Old Growth, which is opposed to old growth logging in British Columbia. And people, if you've ever been stuck behind one of those blockades, uh, you'll know about this. They've blocked roads, bridges. You may have seen some unhappy motorists just kind of lose it on the iron workers several weeks back and actually got out of their car, started moving people aside who were blocking the iron workers bridge. The old uh, Save Old Growth group is now saying they are going to ramp up more blockades starting on Monday. They put out a statement saying there will be more blockades, there will be more civil disobedience. They're not saying where, but it's going to happen again, they say. Last night at BC Place Stadium, some environmental protesters disrupted a Canada men's soccer game and zip-tied themselves to the goalpost of the game, uh, delay, briefly delaying the game last night. I've got uh, Tamara Meggett standing by on this. First, have a listen to this. This is Zane Hack. He's one of the pro, uh, blockade leaders speaking to me on an earlier show. We've been writing letters for 30 years. We've been signing petitions for 30 years. We've been doing marches for 30 years, and nothing has happened, right? Carbon emissions have gone up by 60%. And our demand is very minor, and we're nonviolently disrupting the public. by engage- And in doing so, we're engaging the public in the debate that we're literally faced with the annihilation of the human race. Okay, let's speak to Tamara Maggot now, who is involved with a proposed class action lawsuit against the blockaders. Tamara, thanks for coming on today. Hi, good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Okay, thank you. Can you tell me about this possible class action lawsuit? Well, 
right now we're still in the early days and we're just looking to gather some information from people that have been affected by these blockades. Um, what we've seen coming out through social media and people reaching out to us is that we've seen parents unable to get their children to cancer treatment. We saw that a few weeks ago. Um, unable to pick their children up from school. We've got workers that are missing shifts. And, you know, as we know, with the financial crunches that people are under, missing a shift at work can can be very detrimental to a family. Um, recently at Victoria Day Parade, when we saw this group hijack the Victoria Day Parade, there was a child that had ended up in the hospital with an asthma attack from the smoke things that they use, the, the green, or the green oh. and yellow smoke things that they use. These are causing, yeah. these blockades are causing some serious harm to the residents of British Columbia, and it has to be addressed, you know, under Section okay, 423. So yeah, so you're oh, proposing sorry, to ahead. push back through the court. Yeah, you're proposing now to push back through the courts. So we just have a minute Absolutely. here, Tamara. How would that work? Well, under Section 423, it's a criminal violation with a maximum five years in prison. Um, so we're relying on the Crown. What we're asking is people to reach out to, um, you can go to our website at clearthero.ca or email us at drive at clearthero.ca. If you've been affected by these blockades in any way, shape or form, we want to hear from you. We'll gather this information and we'll be speaking to some law firms about how to proceed from there. Okay, and then hopefully you would get a class action lawsuit. It has to be certified by the courts first, right, before exactly. it can proceed. We just got 30, exactly. 30 seconds here. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, so again, you, need pe- so you, you want can people... the road.ca. Yeah, email, yeah, email us, let us know your stories. You know, document, document, document. If you've got video, um, let us know how you've been affected by this. It's, uh, like I say, when we see children that can't get to cancer treatments or we see children end up in the hospital because of the tactics used. That's some serious harm that needs to be addressed. Okay, we're going to follow this. Thanks for coming on to talk about it. Thank you, Mike. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the battles over the boulevards in Vancouver now. I'm talking lawn and order in the city. The grass that is growing taller and taller day by day on city-owned property. You know, I've had a lot of listeners point this out to me. They've sent me photos of the grass growing on medians, boulevards, traffic islands. Some of the grass is getting really tall. And some of the listeners have asked me, like, what's the deal with this? Are city workers sleeping on the job? Like, why are they not cutting the grass? It's deliberate. They're deliberately letting the grass grow. It's called the Urban Meadow Program. So you just let the grass grow on city property, turn it into a meadow in the middle of the city. City city council says it's good for the birds and the bees and the butterflies, also known as pollinators. Some people don't like it, though. We talked about this on the show yesterday. Have a listen to some of these calls we got on the open line. Have a listen. I think it's a joke. I think it's ridiculous, but it's typical of the council and the mayor that runs this city. Cut the grass. This is ridiculous. When exactly did a boulevard or a median become a park? What about the ticks? What about your animal getting ticks? You need to cut the grass. What a sewer Vancouver has become. It looks bad. Okay, well, not everybody was opposed to it. We got some calls in favor of it, too. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Elvira Lount. Elvira is a Vancouver filmmaker and an activist, and I'm very pleased to welcome her to the show. Elvira, thank you very much for coming on today. 
Hi there, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you, you I'm bet. happy that you're covering this. Yeah, for sure. There's, I think there's a lot of interest in it. And um, I saw some of your tweets on this uh, on social media. So let's talk about this. Like, what do you think when, when you see the grass growing like this? I mean, do you think it's it's ugly looking or can you see the city's point on it? Or what do you think? Well, um, it is ugly looking to start with. Um, and I can understand the city's point, but they're behind the times in what really has, has to be done. Like a few years ago when we first started about talking about saving the bees, the idea was, okay, let everything grow. But now we've developed um, into a more sophisticated um, method of handling all this, um, which is to actually plant um, meadows that are real pollinators. So letting grass grow and letting all the weeds grow is, this is not creating a a pollinator meadow. We can do a lot better, and it just seems like it's lazy. So I did a little bit of background research, and I found two things. Um, Well, the City of Vancouver website itself has uh, a section on beautifying your boulevard and street. Mm -hmm. And it talks about um, helping personalize your neighborhood and make it beautiful, and it it lists all the plants that you can plant in your on your boulevards, on your traffic circles, in corners and everything that will be pollinators. So the city knows what to do. They have a whole website about it. Um, so I don't understand why they aren't starting to do this with all of these boulevards that they're letting grow. Why not you know, gradually turn these over to real pollinators? Yeah, so like real, so real pollinators, I assume, would include like wildflowers, would it not? Yes. Wildflowers, there's, yeah. you know, lavender, um, borage, thyme, fennel, sage, buttercup, um, you know, uh, poppies, sunflowers, you know, all kinds of things. And uh, again, on their own website, they list, um, they have a whole list of plants that pollinators love. Right. Okay. Well, we t- we talked about this on the show yesterday with Vancouver City Councilor Michael Weeb, and he believes this is a good program that that's working well. And here's what he had to say to me yesterday, and I'll get your thoughts. The idea that we can have pollinators and reduce the surface temperature that we were seeing with our heat island effect, but also retain a bit of that moisture. Um, you talked about. When it gets warm, it's really important that we have longer roots in this grass so we don't prevent issues with fires and others. Yeah, so he's saying that, okay, the pollinators is one thing, but he also believes that by not cutting the grass, you uh, potentially lower the surface temperature in the city during the summertime with the grass growing and you retain moisture in the soil and, you know, I guess important during, look at the heat dome we had last year. You know, we certainly could use with some cooler temperatures. But are are you buying that argument? <laughs> not really, no. Okay. I'm not finding it hard to believe that a few boulevards are going to make a huge difference. And, you know, what? why not make them look nice at the same time? You just, you know, when you have a garden and you let it grow wild, you can't just not do anything with it. You have to pull the weeds. You have to cut it, you know, to it, so it grows in a certain way. You know, we have a whole yeah. section of borage in the, in the backyard that the bees love, and we just let it grow wild um, 
and it will grow anywhere. <laughs> so I'm yeah. not suggesting that you plant that on these, but but I think you know it's to me it just seems like virtual virtue virtue signaling or aspirational that you know they're trying to you know say we're doing these great things for the environment, but if you really look at it, it's not what's needed. Um, and I know it would be expensive and time consuming to gradually turn our boulevards into um, real pollinators and things that really um, are great for the environment um, and great for the bees and the butterflies. And I think the city could encourage people to do this on their own streets, on their own boulevards. um, And they have a whole website dedicated to it. So why not, you know, why not, why are they not following their own advice on their own website? And okay. Well, the, the city councilor we had on yesterday, Councilor Weeb, said that they have created some meadows in uh, city parks that are working well. He said there also is staff are maintaining these urban meadows as well. I'm, I, I know a lot of listeners are not convinced about that either because they just think that some of them look ugly and not maintained. But let me play another clip here for you, get your thoughts. So here is Vancouver City Councilor Michael Weeb on yesterday's show. I mean, I don't know if you've seen some of the meadows and some of the parks with the pollinators and all the poppies and all the beautiful flowers. Like, it's pretty remarkable when done right. Um, they do get cut because it is maintained. It's not um, just grown wild. Like, we do have expert staff that are making sure that it's done in a way that is effective. Okay, so he's saying that some of this, some of the meadows that they've created in parks look nice with flowers and it's being maintained, but I don't think it's all being maintained on some of these boulevards and medians, though. Oh, I right? know. From the photos, it doesn't look maintained at all. Um, yeah. It's, it's, um, but it's so very selective. Like, um, other than kits um on the wrong side of the tracks to point gray road and so i run along there sometimes and here you have all these wealthy homes and their boulevards and some of them take care of them other people you know just let them grow wild then you have some parks that the city actually comes in and and cuts the lawn so they're deliberately ignoring all the grass the little sections where all the grass is growing like super long um, yeah and um, when it's, like he says, when it's done right, so right. They're, they're not doing this right. They're do, they may be doing it right in some of the parks. Um, I know there's a wild um, pollinator section near the museum in Vanier Park um, that looks um, very pretty. Um, there was a section, they had put a little um, pollinator garden above Kit's pool a couple of years ago, and... Uh, the last time I ran by, it's totally been neglected. Nobody has mm. come in and um, revitalized it. So you you know you have to take care of these things, right. and I think they should. They've got the expert staff. Um, why not get them to take a look at these boulevards and see what they can do to to beautify and create pollinators for the the bees and um, <clears throat> butterflies and so forth. Um, you know, I, and I think, you know, people can start doing this in their own lawns. Um, that article that you liked yesterday, um, yeah. there's uh, in the Toronto Star from a book, um, A Garden for the Rusty, Patched Bumblebee, Creating Habitat for Native Pollinators um, by Lorraine Johnson and Sheila Cola. It looks like a really good new book. 
Now that's for Ontario, but um, a lot of can be done here too. Yeah, Elvira, thank you very much for coming on today with your thoughts on the issue. I appreciate it a lot. Okay, well, thank you for having me. I don't know if I helped, but. (laughs)